Please join me in today's scripture reading from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And if you're using your pew Bibles, this is on page 979. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. It's a... Uh... Great to see everyone. I think this is probably one of the larger crowds since we've started meeting, and I'm surprised because of the time change. So kudos to all of you. We'll be wrapping up this uh, section of the principle of submission uh, today um, before going into our um, Lent season. And then after Easter, we'll, we'll pick this back up. But just a quick reminder within these verses Paul is addressing a specific group of people, and it is to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You can look back to Ephesians 1.1 for this. It is for those who, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verse 13. It is for those who, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, Ephesians 5. 8 and 10. Ephesians is also for these people who believe in Christ, who have been transformed by the gospel, who are now instructed about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and that's chapter 5, verse 21. And these are all really important reminders that have been repeatedly shared in our Ephesians study, as many of you know, because Christianity isn't about spreading our own ethics. It's not about spreading our own morality. It's not about telling people what to do or what not to do. It is simply sharing the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit to transform one's life. And for those who are faithful in God and believe in Christ as their Savior from their sin to then become who God has created us to be. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone who hears the word of truth believes. There might even be people here who have been here for a while who may not believe. But belief changes everything. It changes how one thinks, how one thinks about relationships. And in regard to this principle of submission, Paul points out these three significant relationships in marriage, in family, between parent and children, and, and work. And so today we'll look at work. When this letter was read aloud to the Ephesian church, it, it was being read to both bond servants and earthly masters. They were all in the same place of gathering and so when looking at the word bondservant, it is this word doulos in Greek. It means slave. And so when we think of slavery in our own country, I need to point out the fact how challenging it is to look at what Paul addressed in the context of the Ephesian church versus the context of what we have in our own country. Now, we all know that context is a continual challenge for us because we live in a different time, especially when we're looking at such a dark period of history in our own history. And so I just need to point out how there are some similarities, but there are some differences as well. 
So within Paul's context, if we're looking 2,000 years ago, not 150 years ago, when Paul wrote this letter, he's addressing the Roman Empire, in which the Ephesian church was within, and over one-third of the Roman population were slaves. They were bondservants. A huge difference is that these slaves were not necessarily a particular race as they were in America. And it's very challenging, I realize, not to go back to our own history and read through that lens just like it's a challenge not to look at other things in the Bible through our own history, through our own context. But biblical context is so important to understand what the Bible teaches. Now here Paul also wrote a letter to the Galatian church, and in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28-29, it reads this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now Paul was addressing salvation, and that is available to everyone. He wasn't writing that once you believe in Christ, you are no longer a Jew or a Greek because they still were. Right? It doesn't change that you are a Jew and a Greek. But what he's pointing out is that even though you are different, you are co-heirs, you are co-equal in the inheritance of salvation. But they're not the same people, even though the inheritance was the same. So that a male is still a male, a female is still a female, even though they have the same inheritance from God. We're not the same. We don't have all the same economic statuses or social statuses or physical situations. And that's not to say what Paul wrote here wasn't a radical statement. To even think about whatever barriers there were to separate people when they're here on this earth that will no longer exist in Christ, that is a revolutionary thought because people would just think, you know, I'm entitled from like where I am in this position, wherever I'm going after I die is going to be the same thing. And he is saying, no, we're all the same. Inheritance is all the same. And what is paramount in the gospel is our reconciliation to God. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The primary concern of the gospel is a person's relationship to God. That a person has been separated from God because of sin. And Christ reconciles a person to God by taking that person's sin upon himself when that respective person believes in Christ and what he has done and trusts in Christ to be their Savior. Our lives are really short. I kind of experienced this just yesterday. My daughter is 16. She's learning to drive. <laughs> Oh, God. I was just sharing this story earlier with Jonathan and Flora. Um, I took her driving yesterday, and um, I, I see the red light. So I said, 
um, slow down. Not slowing down. Stop. Not stopping. Stop. Not stopping. Goes through the red light. And a car from the other lane is green, so obviously comes here and slams on the brakes and I confess my sin. I cussed. <laughs> I did. And I had to apologize to her later and said, that was my fault because I, shouldn't, I should have looked at your level of driving and I shouldn't have put you in that situation. So it's my fault, really. It's mine. But life is short, you know? Like, <laughs> there, there, is, there is no guarantee how long we have to live. None. I, I could have been done yesterday. But you and I have this one very short life to live to reconcile with God. It's all the time we have. And this is the biggest issue for everyone in the world, whether they know it or they don't. And it's not some other issue. It's this. And even though there are so many issues in the world that are of very grave concern, the greatest one is our separation from God. And each gravely concerning issue in this world is connected to the reality of this separation from God. You see, the gospel, although some may disagree, the gospel is not about addressing social, economic, or environmental issues of the world. It can't be, because they're never-ending, right? Like, you address one, or you address 20, like how, how many can we really address? Don't we need to go to the foundation of it all and address the foundational issue so that then we can branch out and address all the issues? And so we have many, many, many global issues of the world that have not been resolved in our existence as people, whether that be slavery or climate change, racism, poverty, gender equality. I mean, there's so many to list. I can't even possibly go through them all. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Why does the church exist? And, agree, and again, some of you may disagree with this, but biblically speaking, it's not to change the social, economic, environmental fabric of the world. We're all living at a time in our world where these global issues of great concern have become the priorities of many churches and this is a great distraction to think that we were put on this earth by God to fix these horrible global issues. Because he could have just done it himself. He doesn't need you and me to do it. What he does need is for us to be reconciled. 
And because we can't fix all of these global issues, which I think he is making his point. That's the point. You can't do it. You can't bring world peace. You can't bring an end to war. You can't bring an end to racism, poverty, all these sorts of things. We can't. The gospel can. The gospel does it. And the church is to proclaim the gospel. Our central message has always been to proclaim the gospel. But many have lost the centrality of the gospel and they've plugged something else in there, whether that is a social thing, an economic thing, an environmental thing, and the Western world wants so much for the rest of the world to live like we do. Live our values. Live our way of governance. Live our way of economics. Live our way of everything when we're the biggest hypocrites in the world. Our central message has always been to proclaim the gospel. And it's not about the Western world, which tends to want to defend what we have, to evangelize what we have to the rest of the world, which I think is very arrogant to do. You know, as Christians, our aim is not preserving. Our aim is not defending or evangelizing our own Western values to the world. Christians are to be about the kingdom of God. We are to be diligent about leading people to salvation through the gospel in our Western civilizations just as much as the rest of the world that, that doesn't have the same values. We are to be Come all things to all people that by all means we might win some. And the gospel is to be the biggest influence of how we think. And that it's the gospel that gets plugged into how we look at social things, economic things, environmental issues. And the gospel is the answer to slavery. We can't just make abolition of slavery the gospel. And this is how Paul addressed the situation between Onesimus the slave and Philemon the, the master. And you can read that in Philemon yourself, but it's the gospel that brings about reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. It's not Paul addressing slavery. It's Paul sharing with them the gospel, that the gospel addresses our social, economic, environmental sins of our world, that the abolition of slavery in the Western world was brought about by Christian men and women. It's the gospel that transformed someone like William Wilberforce, who wrote Amazing Grace, to use his wealth, to use his influence to abolish slavery or to help abolish slavery. It's the, the gospel that changed him, and he applied that to abolish slavery, but it didn't become the gospel for him. Martin Luther King Jr. is a pastor driven by the Bible. He's a Baptist preacher, and this is what we are to do. We are never to lose the gospel, but the gospel does transform us and move us in a direction that God leads us to address these social ills, environmental ills, and economic ills. And how this is applied in our lives is not the same for everyone, because we're not called to the same things. How can you possibly address such huge issues all at once? 
within medicine, there's specialties within medicine that people can't be a cardiologist and endocrinologist at the same time. God calls us to different things. But the thing is, is that the gospel is for everyone. And that message is the same no matter the situation, no matter the global issue. And the reason we have relationships that aren't peaceful within the, this context of a working environment is because of sin. It's the same culprit. So whether that is bond servants and masters not getting along with each other or unions and companies or, or there's office politics or there's labor laws or there's these lobbyists out there, it's all due to a selfishness, a self-centeredness of people. And so how is selfishness and sin to be addressed? The gospel. It's not legislation. It's not political. It's the gospel. I've been here at Regeneration for 20 years, over 20 years. Throughout that time, I've been asked, sometimes told, that I need to address certain social, economic, environmental issues from the pulpit. Keep in mind, we've always been a church that has either met in Oakland or Berkeley so you can imagine the charged people that have spoken with me. It is by the grace of God that I still am here. I don't want to talk about that stuff. I'm a pastor. I address the Bible from the pulpit. I address the gospel from the pulpit. And to the best of my ability, I have attempted to do that. And it's not because I don't have a stance on those global issues, because I'm more than happy on a personal level to show you my finances and my effort and my time to show you where I stand personally as a citizen of this country, as a person who exercises my rights as a citizen of the United States and who lives in a democracy as a Christian, what I do personally. But I don't do this from the pulpit as a pastor. Because as a pastor, sharing from the pulpit, the work of transformation is through the gospel. Transformation is through Christ. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't go to your dentist and ask those things, do you? Because he works on your teeth. You don't tell him to go address climate change or slavery or all these other things or your doctor, because they're taking care of your health. I'm a pastor. I talk about the kingdom of God and the things in the Bible. And those things, the Holy Spirit and the Bible, are to influence your life and how you address those social, economic, and environmental issues. But why are you asking me about the other stuff? You don't ask your dentist. You don't ask your doctor. Holiness and godliness aren't achieved by preaching, teaching about these global issues. That's just my opinion. And again, you might be looking at this differently, but it's done by preaching and teaching the Bible. It's what Paul does. Paul focuses on this larger issue that will address our understanding of these surrounding sins around us, and knowing and understanding this larger issue will help us apply practically and address practically those things that are wrong around us. But we have to guard against those peripheral issues becoming the main issue. 
Christians are to be people of action. We are to be people of action that address injustices of our world. But those injustices are not substitutes to the Bible. And we cannot do that. We address sin with the Bible. We don't address what's wrong with the world with our own solutions. Because that fails. Why? Because we are still in sin if we don't have Christ. We are still sinners without Christ. What is a sinner? A sinner is a person who does not live for the glory of God, simply put. And that's everyone. Because who lives 100% of their life for the glory of God? Nobody. No one does that. They live for their own glory. Or they live for the glory of an idol. But it's not God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, starting in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now some of you may be wondering, when are we going to get to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5? Soon. But just a quick reminder, Christians are holy. We are holy, meaning we're not common. We are uncommon. We're different from the common. So when we're looking at our marriages and we're looking at our families and we're looking at our workplaces, that Jesus has affected all of it. All of it that we're being more conformed into his image moment by moment so that we're growing to be better spouses, parents, children, workers, employers, not because of our own doing, but because of the grace of God in our lives. That the grace of God has changed us so that we have this submissive spirit to Jesus. And then that spills over into our homes. It spills over into our workplaces. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And this first instruction is to obey. This is very difficult for so many people. But as Christians, we are to be excellent in the way we take directions from our boss. Does that mean we do everything they tell us to do? No. Just like in your spousal relationship or your parental relationship and this work relationship, we don't do things that go against the Bible. We don't do immoral, unethical, illegal things. We don't do idolatrous things. But if we are asked to do things that are not unbiblical, immoral, unethical, illegal, or or idolatrous, then obey. Do it. We obey with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul wrote, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is speaking about reverence. This is speaking about respect and not misrepresenting Jesus in how we work out our salvation. So when we're looking at Ephesians, it is to obey your workplace boss with respect 
and reverence, and for us not to misrepresent Jesus to our boss or those people who are working with us. So how are we at work? Do we have a spirit of antagonism? Are we disinterested in our work? And while at our workplaces, we are a testimony of the gospel there. So how are you doing at work? Are you just kind of doing the bare minimum just to skate by? And do you only do your best when others are around and looking? And this goes to whatever job you're doing because that's where God has us working at the moment. And the best place for you to serve God is the very place that God has you right now. It's the best place. Because ultimately you are serving Christ there, and it's for the glory of God. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. We are holy. We are different. And it's quite the testimony to be thought of in such a way at your workplace by your boss that you're the best worker there. That you have a great attitude, that you're helpful, that you consistently do good work, you work hard and think about this where do you spend most of your waking hours? Well, now it's probably home working remotely. I, I get it, I get it. But there is a movement to go back. And think about this. How many Christians are at your workplace? For many of us, it's a few. Not, not for me. Like most, most of us are here. But. But for a lot of places, you're the only Christian testimony there. Before the pandemic, I worked as a banquet server at the Ritz-Carlton San Francisco. On call. Like it was just like whenever I had a free evening or a weekend or something. And, and so I'd, I'd do that. I have to tell you, like the best job I've ever had. Like it's, you don't have to think much. You don't take work back with you. You kind of just punch in, punch out. Like I love that. I love that. And some of you are like, you're crazy. Let's switch spots. Let's switch spots. But I love that job. But I have to tell you, like, in terms of ministry, man, it was, it was a lot. People going through divorces and their kids going through drugs and kids running away and suicide and all these relationship issues. Like, I, I was, like, doing so much ministry there, a ton of ministry there. Very few Christians, maybe like a half dozen within a staff of like 90. There's only like a half dozen of us and we can pray together and we can talk to each other. It was, it was like awesome. It was awesome ministry and we would be able to like pray with one another for a particular colleague who was going through a difficult time and people came to the Lord. Like people got to know Jesus through that. It was awesome. You get to go into places that I can't. Like, how many of you can go into a locker room at the Ritz-Carlton? Like, at the time, it was only me. So you are in places that other people can't get into. You are that testimony there. 
And Paul addresses these relationships where we invest most of our time. And so as spouses in our marriage, as parents or children in the home, as workers or employers within work environments, where we invest the most time and where we have the most impact as Christians in our respective circles of influence. And to think of all the division people experience in marriage, in homes, in workplaces, that the gospel creates this union of heart and mind of people who are so different culturally, racially, their social status and their giftings and their educations and their backgrounds and all this stuff, and it does what the world tries to do, but it can't do. And this is the church. This is us. We are so different here. People are so different. But here we all are together worshiping Jesus Christ. It's not perfect. Just as marriages, families, and workplaces aren't perfect. And the reason being is because we're involved. People are involved. But if we are all doing our part as an obedient follower of Christ, it works. The unfortunate thing is that not everyone involved in a marriage or in a family or in a workplace or in a church participate in the same obedient way. Now let's take a look at our last verse here. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There is a distinction between employee and employer in the workplace. And the beautiful thing is that in the church, it doesn't mean the same thing. Just as in that Ephesian church, like if there was a bondservant and a master, but then when they came to church together, like a Philemon and Onesimus, same. There's no partiality there. And that bondservant employee can be an elder and hold leadership. And in fact, many times people in the church work with each other, and, and there are people who employ others in the church, but it doesn't mean that employee can slack off because the employer is someone in the church and take advantage of that relationship because when we work we work for Christ when we serve in the church we serve Christ we serve Christ so that not only is our work being looked at but who we are is being looked at our testimony is being looked at and how we handle conflict how we speak how hard we work how responsible we are, how we respond to stressful situations. How do we manifest the gospel in our workplace with all these different things coming our way? Colossians 3, starting in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Aim to serve Jesus. We are living in an age of the great resignation. I don't know if you've heard this. But wherever you are, serve Jesus. Serve Jesus. Both employee and employer, we will stand before Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is no partiality with God. 
employer, employee, all on the equal footing before God, and God will look at both in how they served Christ. So for the employee, have they served to the glory of God in their employment? For the employer, have they served to the glory of God as an employer? Have employees been treated fairly? Are employees being taken care of? It was actually a Christian who started the labor movement in Britain before even the United States. Right? The labor party in Britain was started by a Christian addressing this social concern. As I said earlier, we'll be heading into a Lenten series next week. We'll pick up Ephesians after Easter and we'll specifically be looking at spiritual warfare. But in, in conclusion for today, we look at these terrible global issues of the world such as slavery. And it still hasn't been completely abolished from the world. In fact, it's worse than it has ever been globally. Maybe not in our country. We dealt with that 150 years ago. It's not perfect. There are still terrible ramifications and aftermath from that sin. But why is it that slavery hasn't been abolished from the world? And it's because if you don't attempt solving it with the gospel... How else do you combat it? Because then it, the excuse goes to kind of what the world's excuse is, is that, you know, through time, through legislative means or political means or whatever other means, through time, we'll solve this. It's been thousands of years, man. And it's the worst that it's ever been today. We're going to solve it. It's only gotten worse. And slavery has been around for thousands of years. This is not a new thing. Thousands of years. And so where's the progress? There's no progress because we live in a fallen world full of sinners. Where the aim isn't to glorify God, it's to glorify ourselves. The aim isn't to believe in God, it is to believe in ourselves. The aim isn't to care about what God wants, it is about what we want. So am I hopeful about what is to happen in our world that we would figure out how to solve the social ills, the economic ills, the environmental ills? Am I hopeful about that? Not without the gospel. Not at all. Not a chance without the gospel. Romans chapter 1, starting verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you hear that? God gave them up. There's not a hope in the world without the gospel. You can't possibly think we are going to solve war, chaos, destruction, disorder, conflict, tyranny, racism, poverty, climate change, whatever it is. 
not until the return of Christ. Why? Because sinful people will always look to exploit, oppress, abuse one another since there is no cure for them other than the gospel. That the sin remains. Without the gospel, the the world is wasting its time, its energy, and resources because it won't work. The only hope we have in addressing these global issues is the gospel. And throughout the world, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is still being preached and taught today, throughout the world. And it's this remnant of hope that the world has through us as the church, and it has been placed in our hands as the church. And so do you see the immense responsibility and the privilege we have to save the world through the gospel? And that our life is short. And so we live this gospel life in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, with the hopes that that is planted within a person and they can address these social problems, environmental problems, economic problems that the Lord has called on them and placed on their heart to address. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you asking for your forgiveness. That you came to reconcile us to a holy God and we ask for forgiveness whenever we look upon ourselves as more than. More than you. That you are the one to usher in peace. That you are the one to reconcile us to holy God from our sins and and from that foundation working out the other things in our world. We pray, Lord, that we would not be distracted by the main foundational piece of the gospel and needing to be reconciled to you and, and the periphery things becoming the gospel. We ask God for guarding against that. At the same time, Lord, we we do pray that you would plant in us the wisdom, the diligence, the discernment, the resources to address the injustices of the world that you call us to action to, but that they're not substitutes and that they're not misplaced. We pray, Lord, for your empowerment because there are so many things wrong. And you love these people that are hurt by the sin. So we ask, Lord, for your grace and your love, your mercy to fill us and to have that to overflowing so that we can share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, let's take this together, this beautiful sign of reconciliation of the broken body of Christ taking upon our sin on himself, paying our penalty And we're instructed to do this until his return. And so let let us take this body of Christ together and participate together. We have the fruit of the vine symbolizing the sacrificial spilled blood of Christ, costing his life to take upon our sins upon himself. We take this in remembrance of Jesus. Lord Jesus, you give us these beautiful signs 
as a promise of your return. You've instructed us to do this until you return, and so we do. Remembering what you did on the cross, remembering your resurrection as we're going to be celebrating these things in the next several weeks through Lent. I pray that you would help center us during this time of pause as we talk more about the crucifixion and the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.